I wonder if you've ever been in the presence of greatness. I have, sort of. Last year, Marty and I had a chance to take a long-awaited vacation to see the city of Boston. And being a die-hard, lifelong Boston Celtics fan, I invested two years' worth of birthday and Father's Day and Christmas gifts, and I bought us two great seats to see the Celtics play the Cleveland Cavaliers in the last game of the NBA regular season. You want to know how good our seats were? They were A1 and A2 in the TD Garden. This was like going to Mecca for me, my pilgrimage. And while I was there, I got to see this man from this close, LeBron James. He's a monster. He's a beast. But I was so happy when I got to see him <laughs> because my eyes had seen King James. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago after LeBron James once again dumped my Boston Celtics in Game 7 of the NBA Eastern Conference Finals, he was interviewed after the game and this is what he said, the man above has given me a God-given ability and I just try to take full advantage of it. Another of his euphemisms for God is the man upstairs, as in this quote from 2011. And by the way, LeBron, this year wasn't your time either. You know, I find it interesting that people are so free to take the name of the Lord in vain, but when it comes time to actually talk about God, all they can do is fumble about with words like the man upstairs. I commend LeBron for acknowledging that his talents are God-given, but he is a better basketball player than he is a theologian. Theology is the study of God, of who he is, and it's the study that we started as our summer series. We're trying to figure out who God is. Is he really the man upstairs? What is God like, and how would we ever find out? Well, I don't think we could do better than to listen to somebody who's actually seen God. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to learn what happens to somebody in the presence of God himself. Our text opens today, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. It was 740 B.C. Uzziah had ruled the country of Judah well for most of his 52 years. He had defended its territory. He had expanded the, the, the territory of Judah. He had built the economy, but at the end of his life, he grew proud, and God afflicted him with leprosy. And so as he is being buried in shame outside of the royal cemetery, the neighboring country of Assyria is on the rise, and the future of the country of Judah looks very dark indeed. As the earthly king is dying, Isaiah is given a vision of the king of heaven. And it is when life is the darkest that we most need a vision of this great God. And so maybe that's what you need this morning. But before we jump in, there's a question that we need to ask. And that is, can people really see God? I mean, we know that God is a spirit and we can't see spirits with our physical eyes. Have you thought about that before? That's why John says in 1.18, no man has ever seen God. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God dwells in unapproachable light. No man has ever seen him or can ever see him. 
God is so brilliant that if we were to see him with these eyes, we would literally just explode. And yet, we have passages like ours today. Or in Exodus chapter 24, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu went up with 70 of the elders of Israel on Mount Sinai, and it says there they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet was a pavement of, pavement of sapphire stone as clear as the sky itself. Moses once asked, God, may I see your glory? And God said, no, you may not see my face because no one can see my face and live. But God did let him see the back of him as God walked by. Ezekiel had a vision of God. Ezekiel saw a throne above a sky that was sparkling like ice, a throne of sapphire. And on that throne, he saw someone like a man who was glowing as if with burning metal and there was fire all around him. The Apostle John had probably the best glimpse of this figure in heaven, and this is his description of what he saw in Revelation 1. He said, I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Well, what is going on here? It is true that no man has ever seen God in his essence, in his fullness. So what have they seen? I think Ezekiel had the best clue for us. He said in chapter 1 that I saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. This is how one commentator described it. He said, people have only seen a manifestation of the glory of God in human form. Not as he is in himself, but as he accommodated himself to our finite human capacities. Alex Motier said this, he graciously condescends to clothe now this side of his nature and now that with visibility so that we can understand something about him. And John Calvin, then, about our passage today, says this, There was exhibited to Isaiah such a form as enabled him, according to his capacity, to perceive the inconceivable majesty of the glory of God. And my friends, how could we see God today? Would you like to see him? I, I think I would. But in the absence of him appearing to us in some form, we're going to have to make do this morning with words. If God would just be here and show himself, the sermon would be over and we would get it. But for the next few minutes, we're going to have to use words to try to explain what Isaiah experienced in the throne room of heaven. And so use your imagination with me as we listen to Isaiah describe what happened. And as he enters the presence of God, there are four things that happen to human beings in the presence of God. The first is that we see the majesty of God, verses 1 and 2. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. God was on a throne. It's hard for us in a democratic society to understand the symbolism of a throne. This, my friends, was not the Oval Office, as powerful a place as that was. 
There's no Congress, there's no Senate, there's no cabinet, there's no checks and balances. A king rules from his throne and he judges from his throne and nobody questions the king. He was sitting on the throne. He was content. He was unhurried. He was unworried. He was unchallenged as he sat on his throne. And Isaiah says this throne was high and lifted up. Height is a position of knowledge and power. You almost get the image of Isaiah tilting his head backwards and looking up at this lofty mountain peak and he can barely see the top of it. And and then it moves and he realizes it's alive. It's God high on his throne. God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and he looks down on its inhabitants like grasshoppers. The terrain of his robe filled the temple. God is so large in one sense that the world cannot even contain him. And then verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Notice that the creature always stands in the presence of the creator. This is the only time in scripture these creatures are mentioned. The word in Hebrew literally means fiery beings. And tradition has it that they were the highest order of celestial beings. They had six wings. With two, they covered their eyes in reverence. With two, they covered their feet in humility. And with two, they stood ready to fly, to carry out the orders of the one who sat on the throne. It is clear that Isaiah is in the presence of someone upstairs but he is not a man. And upstairs is very, very high. The psalmist said that God is so high that he stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. From where God sits on his throne, he can barely see even the Milky Way. He looks down and says, now where is that Milky Way? It's somewhere way down there. That's how high and exalted and majestic our God is. And seeing this God makes Isaiah feel minuscule in comparison. But there's a second thing that happens when we enter the presence of God. And that is that we feel the holiness of God. Verses 3 to 5. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The seraphim are apparently in two semicircles around the throne. They are calling out to one another in antiphonal fashion, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now the Hebrew language repeats a word twice when it wants to emphasize something. Very rarely does it ever repeat a word three times like it does here. What this means is this is a superlative. This is of super importance. And this is the only characteristic of God in all of the Bible that's ever repeated three times. And it's repeated here as well as in Revelation 4. This is the very same song that the creatures around the throne in heaven are still singing today. God is not love, love, love. The Bible never says that. But God is holy, holy, holy. And we need to understand what that means this morning. The root meaning of the word is to be separate, to be different, to be cut off. And so to be holy is to be completely different. It is to be in a category completely separate and distinct and independent of everything else. 
And so here's one simple way. I know we have some kids in the service today. If you want to know what holiness is, this is an easy way to describe it. Holiness means to be holy other. Now, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, but I'm going to try to explain it to you. God is holy other. He is different than anything that we know. Now, R.C. Sproul has helped us understand that, and this is how he describes it. He is higher than the world. He has absolute power over the world. The world has no power over him. Transcendence describes God in his consuming majesty, his exalted loftiness. It points to the infinite distance that separates him from every creature. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. And all we can do is, is use words to try to explain this difference, but as soon as we do, we, we fall into the danger of, of trying to compare God with something. Stephen Charnock said, God is like the sun compared to the glowworm of the rest of creation. But, but even that is not accurate. Now, if LeBron James were on the stage today, would you see a difference between him and me? <laughs> Uh, yeah, you'd see a big difference in many ways, but you know, LeBron still puts his pants on one leg at a time. He is a human being. If we brought an ant up on the stage, would there be a difference between an ant and LeBron James? There would be a tremendous difference. But if we were to bring God on the stage, would there be any difference between him and LeBron? The difference would be so great, it would go past the moon, past Pluto, out. It, you couldn't even measure the difference. You see, because LeBron and an ant are creatures, and God is the creator. What we do is we build things. Ants build things. We build things. We're just a little better at building things than they are. But God doesn't build things. God creates things. God just says, be, and it is. Have you ever done that? God knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow. That's what it means that God is holy. He is not a creature. He is the creator. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You remember the disciples, they got a glimpse of Jesus' holiness. When they were on a lake and a terrible storm came up, they feared for their lives. Jesus was asleep. They wake him up, and Jesus just says two words in the Greek. He says, be quiet, be muzzled, and the wind and the waves obey him. And the disciples, rather than being calm, are afraid all over again, but for a different reason. Because they've seen in the power of Christ a greater power than they saw in the power of nature. They are in the presence of the divine, of the holy, and it sends shivers down your back and makes your skin crawl because you're in the presence of something completely different than you've ever known before. And they said, what kind of man is this? He's not a man at all. He is a man, but he is God as well in our midst. That's why Isaiah says in 46.9, I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. See, so holiness is not just another in a long list of the attributes of God. It is the essence of who he is. It is a synonym for his deity. And all of God's attributes are holy. His justice is holy because it's like nobody else's justice ever. 
His truth is holy because everything he says is completely true from beginning to end and on and on and on. And this is what the seraphim are chanting. That this God is higher, he is separate, he is different, he is altogether removed from all of his creation. In fact, he says all of the earth is full of the glory of the Lord. What is the glory of the Lord? It is simply the revelation of his attributes. And everywhere you look on earth, it's obvious that there is a creator. As Paul said in Romans chapter 1, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Everybody around this earth knows if they look in their hearts and look around them that there is a creator. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole world is the theater on which his glory is displayed. And as they speak, verse 4, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Sproul says, even wood and metal had the good sense to be moved by the presence of God. Well, what about the idea of purity then? Normally we think of holiness as the same as righteousness, as, as not doing anything wrong. And Sproul says, purity is not excluded from the idea of the holy. It is contained within it. You see, so God is holy in his purity. He is pure like nothing else. God has never sinned. He never can sin. He's never even tempted by sin. And that's why often when he is seen in a vision, there is this pavement or sea of glass as, as clear as the heavens around him because anywhere you look in God, you will never find even one single dot of blackness. John said, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And so here's the other side of God's holiness. He is not only holy other, he is also holy pure. But there's another dimension of God's holiness that now is going to come out in our text. Habakkuk 1.13 says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing." See, not only has God done nothing wrong, he loves righteousness, but God also hates wickedness, and he does something about it. You see, he's not just a holy God sitting there off in a corner hoping the world doesn't fall apart. He is looking at wickedness that is destroying his creation, and he hates it, and he is set out to destroy the sin in the world. He hates sin like a mother hates the cancer that is destroying the body of her child. There's nothing about sin that he likes. He hates it to his core, and he is opposed to it, and he's out to get rid of it. Now, you've got to imagine Isaiah. He's drinking from a fire hose, trying to take this great sight in that he's just been allowed to see. But now there's a shift. Now he just doesn't understand the majesty and the holiness of God, but he begins to feel the holiness of God. Because he understands suddenly in verse 5 that when he sees the holiness of God, the holiness of God sees him. And when the holiness of God sees us, it's like we've had an x-ray. It's like everything inside of us is exposed and out there on the screen. Isaiah suddenly realizes that he's not just in a theater seat watching a drama, but he's actually up on stage a part of that drama. You see, we don't just look at God's majesty like we might look at the Grand Canyon or the Niagara Falls and say, wow, God is amazing, and walk away unchanged. 
No, when we look at God's majesty, we realize that we then are a part of the story, just like Isaiah did, and that immediately created a problem for Isaiah. Instantly, he understood what the problem was, and he says in verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the light of God's majesty, he felt minuscule. But in the light of God's holiness, he felt condemned. He understood what the psalmist meant when he said, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And the answer is nobody. And yet here he was. He was like the kid that had tracked mud into the house and onto the freshly mopped kitchen floor and The kid looks over and there's mom with her arms crossed and giving him the look. Only he now has not to deal with the man upstairs. He has also not only to deal with a mama in her kitchen, he has to deal with the God Almighty and he is busted. Now Isaiah was a prophet. He was probably one of the most righteous men around. And yet he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. This doesn't mean that he had let a bad word slip out of his mouth when he hit his thumb with a hammer. But he understood that out of the mouth comes what's in our hearts. And as Jesus said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. And Isaiah knew that there were evil thoughts and lusts and desires in him and they had expressed themselves on occasion out of his mouth. And God in his holiness, in his x-ray of him, saw every one of those things. And he says, woe is me. The exact same word that he's just used in chapter 5 when he's pronounced woe on the nations who are guilty of sin and whom God is about to judge. He says, I am broken now before me, before God. I am doomed to die. I am ruined. I have tracked my sins into a holy place. My eyes have seen the majesty of God and now it is all over for me. See, the vision has revealed the heights of God's majesty, the breadths of his holiness and the depths of man's uncleanness. And my friends, I think that our spiritual sensitivity to sin is often dull because we have lost sight of a holy God. Even one sin is repulsive in his sight. Now, I apologize for this illustration, but it's the only way that this makes sense to me. This afternoon, you might go home and have a a glass of iced tea as you cool off after the rain. Now imagine that I were to put a teaspoon of urine in your iced tea. What would you think about that then? I don't think you'd drink it. I think you would pour it out, you would sterilize the glass, and you might not ever use it again. Why? Because you have an antipathy, you have a hatred of something so dirty and vile you would not let it come anywhere near you. And yet you and I have so accommodated sin because that's who we are and that's what our culture is like. And we've lost sight of this God who cannot tolerate even a drop of sin in his presence. And in his presence, we are doomed. But the story doesn't end there, and I'm so glad for that. Because there's a third thing that can happen in the presence of God, and that is that we can experience the forgiveness of God, verses 6 and 7. God brought Isaiah into his presence, not with the intention of incinerating him, as he knew now that he well deserved, but with the intention of rescuing him. 
That is our great God. The initiative is God's as it has been all along, and look what happens. There's no indication in the text that a word was spoken from the throne, but we can assume that because it says in verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me. The seraphim did nothing apart from a command from God. And so God has issued a command, and it's interesting that though they cover their eyes and their feet, they don't cover their ears like sometimes we do. They're ready to listen, to hear the word of the king, and to obey his command. And so one of the the seraphim, one seraph comes with a, a coal in his hand, a live coal from the altar. An altar? He had not mentioned that before. But my friends, there is an altar in heaven. Perhaps the cause of all of the smoke that he saw earlier. And the smoke was because something was burning on the altar. And what was burning on the altar? Altars were used for one thing in the Old Testament, for sacrifices. Animals were brought and killed. Their blood was splashed against the altar, and their flesh was burned upon the altar. And it is from this altar now that a seraph takes a coal and brings it to Isaiah. And you've got to wonder what he's thinking now. See, thinking, is this how God is going to punish me for my sins? And if so, I would rightly deserve it. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Isaiah suddenly realizes that something has already died on the altar so that he does not have to. And as that coal is brought from that sacrifice and pressed against his lips, the organ of his sinning, it burns away the sin. The death of the animal when applied by faith touch the heart and the life of the sinner and burns away the sin. And the angel announces this amazing news. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. My friends, if we were to come into the presence of God today, if his holiness would x-ray us, it would find all kinds of evil inside of us. And we would be undone in his presence. But God loves us and God's made a plan for us to be cleansed so that we can come into his sight. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you and I had an altar like this? The truth is we do. The author of Hebrews said in chapter 13, verse 1, we have an altar to eat from that those who offer the sacrifices know nothing about. In fact, the altar that we have now as New Testament saints is one that Jesus has asked us to remember again and again and again. And so we're just going to stop in the middle of this sermon. It's not over yet. But we're going to look at this altar, and we're going to do what Jesus asked us to do. And I'm going to invite those who are going to be serving communion today, if you would come forward, and, and, and we're going to remember Jesus as he asked us to do. What we're going to do now is those of us who have put our faith in this sacrifice on this altar are going to remember the death of Jesus with these two elements, a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice. If you do not yet know Jesus, let me say that you might be hearing the sermon this morning and you might think, this God is so dangerous that I think I'm going to just opt out. I'm going to go home and 
and, and not deal with that whole thing. And you know what? You can do that today. You can. But you can't opt out forever. Because one day your eyes are going to see this king and his eyes are going to see you. You're going to need something to burn away your sin. And, and let me just invite you. We're going to have some folks up at the service at, at the front afterwards. We'd love to help you prepare for that day. And if you're in that category, don't partake of these elements right now because they don't mean anything to you. The coal hasn't touched your lips yet. But for those of us who do believe, who have an altar where the body of Jesus has been sacrificed for us and where his blood has been poured out for us, we want to just come and remember that today. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb who has been slaughtered on the altar for us. We're going to pass out the elements. I'd invite you to hold them, and we will partake together when everyone's been served. So what happens next? Is the story over? What, what do you feel after somebody has been so gracious and merciful to you? When you've been on the brink of disaster, of, of falling into the pit of fire, and, and somebody reached down and rescued you? and rescued you at great cost to himself. You can never look at that one the same way again, can you? It changes our hearts. He who has been forgiven much loves much. And love, my friends, always acts or it's not true love. See, in light of God's great forgiveness, we are so grateful. We are indebted to him. And this makes us ready to serve him. It's fascinating to me what happens next. And we're just going to move one more verse in this passage because this is the application of coming into the presence of God. The story could end right here at the end of verse 7, couldn't it? It would be a terrific story. You've had the drama. You've had the climax. You've had the resolution. And now everything's good. And yet the story doesn't end here because there's more to the story. Isaiah doesn't just fall down and worship God and thank him for saving him. In fact, if he did that, it's not even recorded here in Scripture. He, he should have done that. He may have done it. But there's more to the story. And the more to the story is that there are more people than Isaiah in the world. And all the people on the face of the earth need to have an experience of the presence of God. They need to see his majesty, they need to feel his holiness, and they need to experience the forgiveness of God. And so the fourth thing that can happen to us in the presence of God is that we respond to the call of God. Look what happens in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. You see, our faith, our God, is about more than just our individual relationship with Him, as beautiful and as important as that is. He wants each of us individually to be reconciled to Him, but the story doesn't end there. God has a mission to do. God is on a mission, and He says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Implying again the the Trinity, the plurality of persons within the singular God that we looked at last week. God has a job to be done, and what is Isaiah's response? Does he say, Well, God, what is that? (laughs) That's what we want to do. If if somebody says, I've got something I'd like you to do, we always ask, well, what is it? Because we want to know before we get involved whether we want to do it or not. 
Isaiah doesn't ask that at all. He says, God, you have done so much for me. I was dead and now I'm alive. I was lost, but now I'm found. I am yours. You've won me. All I have is yours because without you, I would be dead. And so Isaiah just simply says, here am I. Send me. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I am yours because you have bought me now with a price. This is the call to go. It is one of our core values as a church. And as you read the rest of the chapter, Isaiah's mission was very different than ours today, but ours is very clear as well. Our mission, Jesus said in Matthew 28, is to go and make disciples of all nations because he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And this is how Paul described it. He said, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom in him of whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? You see, God's plan is not to individually reveal himself to every person on the face of the earth, although he's doing that more and more these days in the Muslim world particularly. But God's plan is that someone would go and actually preach this message of the majesty and the holiness and the forgiveness of God. And unless we go do that, they're not going to be able to hear. My friends, there are people in your neighborhood. There are people in our city there are people in our world who need to hear this message. And God's call is very clear this morning. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Are you doing anything for this God who has redeemed you? We've got an opportunity this summer for you to have a, a ministry in your own backyard and there's been kits available in the, in the foyer that you can take and set up so that kids in your community can come and have fun and learn about the grace of God through Jesus Christ. We have opportunities in Brookside for you to be involved in incarnating the love of God in Jesus Christ. We have ministries around the world that we're involved in that need you to be involved in prayer and in support and some of you to actually go, but you're never going to be involved until you first See the majesty of God, feel the holiness of God, and then experience the wonderful forgiveness of God that cleanses you from all of your guilt. Well, I wish God would give a vision of himself today, but we've had to do it by words. And I just wonder this morning if you have seen God's majesty in a fresh way. I wonder if you have understood and then felt his holiness bearing down upon you. I wonder if you've experienced his grace in forgiving you of all of your sins. Because when he says your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for, our hearts leap for joy. Our future is assured. But the work is not over. Will you do what he's asking you to do, whatever it is? Will you go and be his ambassador this summer, this week, tomorrow, in the world that he is sending you into? so that all people might know the majesty and the holiness and the forgiveness of our great God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have loved us so much that even though your holiness should have incinerated us, it has not. But you've reached out and rescued us through the body of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that and we just give ourselves afresh now as we Think again about your holiness, afresh to do the work that you've called each one of us to do according to our gifts and calling, 
so that more people might taste and see that you are good and more glory might come to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.